Hello, and welcome back to episode two of Social Work Moves. I'm talking to Jean, who is an experienced social worker with many, many years in many, many fields, and currently working in the mental health field in England. Jean's pandemic was characterised by a fight against fear for herself and the people she was working for on her caseload. She focuses on people's strengths and how this has been able to support them throughout the pandemic and the social work developments that this has enabled. Our interview occurred in 2021 when the government's race report was published and her passion for open and difficult conversations were eye-opening to me and led to much deeper reflection on structural racism and conversations that need to happen to bring about change. I hope you enjoy it. Jean, what brought you to social work? I've always had a desire to help people, quite a common aspiration, but I, I trained as a psychiatric nurse at 18. I developed an interest in psychiatry and after qualifying as a social worker, I became more aware of the social model, you know, then developed an interest more holistically in terms of working with the whole person and then, you know, got an interest in social work. So really to sort of progress from at that stage, the medical model was, you know, I wanted to sort of look at the whole person and work with them holistically. So yeah, and trained, you know, in the in, in the eighties as as a social worker and I've been working in different teams, but generally with adults in mental health ever since. And what do you do at the moment? My role at the moment is working with adults in mental the mental health team, you know, as a as a social worker, providing a, a service with working, you know, one to one with people, assessing people. I've been an amp as well. You know, in forensic teams, various teams in my career. I've had a long career now, over 30 odd years. So I've seen a lot of changes in social work. So my role is basically as a as care coordinator and social worker in a multidisciplinary team. And the last year has been really difficult. We've had, obviously, the pandemic and all the changes mm-hmm. that's brought about. And we've also had the, the Black Lives Matter following George Floyd's murder last year. And the changes that that's brought about to local authorities, those will be some of the things that we'll be talking about really in this interview. In general, what have been some of the main challenges that you faced over the last year? Mm, I think, obviously, you know, the whole world, you know, was a sort of fast-moving, fast-emerging picture. You know, we didn't know exactly what was happening, but obviously extremely scary on a personal level, because I have a underlying health issue, I have sickle cell disease, which is a genetic condition born with it. But, you know, that put me in that category, and it was, it was very, very scary. Once I developed an understanding about how dangerous COVID-19 is, and, and of course, at the time, you know, when you're seeing people dying literally in front of you, the pictures, you know, of, of Black and Asian people being the first pictures that we saw of people dying, you know, so so suddenly. It was absolutely terrifying. So it was an adjustment to make, really, on a personal level and on a professional level. And, you know, as a social worker, trying to work with vulnerable clients who have various mental health issues, anxiety, 
you know, psychosis, being able to allay their fears as well. I mean, one of the overriding things was for me to just be congruent with my clients and to to really stress on them, you know, how serious this this was, and particularly for BAME black and ethnic minority people, because that's that's what we were seeing, the higher numbers were dying, you know, so that was really scary. Did you feel at the time as well that the clients that you were seeing understood the risks or you felt that they didn't? I think because there was a sort of information gap and at the time it felt like the the government was behind the curve, local authorities were behind the curve. Not many people knew what was going on. You know, I am a person that, you know, I'm interested and I will read and, and, and research and I did a lot of that and I was able to speak to colleagues, friends who were able to give me advice. And I, I heard on the on the side of caution and I was very clear with my clients that this is a serious, serious health risk and, you know, that we have to take it seriously. And, you know, at the time I can even remember, you know, at that early stage, the different information, contrary information that was coming out as well, even at that early stage through WhatsApp being very clear with my clients that, you know, they must take that with a pinch of salt, that there are, you know, that, that, that there's there's misinformation out there and it's very important. So, yeah, so, I mean, I personally, I mean, I, from the get-go, I took this extremely seriously. Once I acknowledged the risk that I was under, which was frightening, I then took it very, very seriously, you know, especially seeing people dying, literally, you know, healthy people. I mean, one of the things that I felt very, very disturbed by was at the beginning there was this talk about underlying health issues as if that was why people were dying and it was almost like a narrative that was being pushed to say oh well you know they had underlying health issues their life is less value you know and I just thought this is unacceptable people do not die from high blood pressure per se people live with these conditions for men you know they, they live with them and they live long and you know quality lives. But there was a certain narrative that was being pushed once people began to see that it was affecting black and Asian minority people more. There was this kind of narrative. But it was almost like a gap that was left for people to fill in to say, oh, okay, maybe because they've got diabetes or they've got this condition, that's what... And, you know, not, that was not the case. Later on, as you know, we were able to see that racism and discrimination played a massive part in that. I think... In the beginning, that that narrative also, it makes people feel quite worthless, really, doesn't it? It's sort of like, almost like, oh, I've got this condition, but actually nobody cares what's going to happen to me. Exactly. I mean, it devalues your life. Because I I felt that people were being devalued because they had, and young people, and even elderly people, their life was, oh, well, they're 70, they're 80, they're going to die anyway. It was this kind of attitude that their life was disposable. And I, I felt very, very upset about that personally because you know when you later on realize health inequalities the impact of health inequalities particularly for black and ethnic minorities that this is an impact of weathering this is an impact of racism that actually means that my life expectancy is eight years less than a white counterpart and it's linked to to inequalities that I can do nothing about and so you know you saw doctors you saw you know mental health workers who weren't in poverty, I'm assuming, a decent income, but were still dying. So, you know, this is this is a result of racism, you know, and the, the health 
disparities, you know, that puts them in the front lines or put them at risk, as we were later to see, you know, was one of the reasons. And do you think that came more to the fore after George Floyd's murder and after the Black Lives Matter movement started mm. outing racism? Mm-hmm. Because I suppose it wasn't so clear in the beginning, was it? In the beginning, the pandemic was all about underlying health conditions without really talking about yes. um, any other factors. Yeah, absolutely. It came out later on. I mean, I think what was interesting was at the beginning of uh, we saw, you know, white faces working in the NHS, white doctors, nurses. I remember a picture in the paper of totally white faces. And then later on, we saw the black and brown faces as they, you know, were dying. But yeah, a picture began to emerge slowly because, you know, people asking the question, why are black and Asian people dying in greater numbers? What is the reason for this? So, you know, of course, questions were being asked. And then later on, I was very fortunate to be in a, a group of, of professionals who, who arranged a webinar and it was on a Friday evening. And it was that the highlight of my week. And this went on for about 12 weeks during the, the whole of the pandemic. It was a lifeline. And at that time, people had no idea what was going on. They were terrified, especially agency workers, nurses, you know, care workers. And they were telling their stories that they were being, you know, they have been made to go on COVID wards. Some of them didn't have the PPE. So these stories are coming out about what was really going on on the ground. And through that support, it was like a support group, really. People were being empowered to say, look, you have rights. You have employment rights. You know, your employers have a duty of care to protect you. You don't have the right PPE. You should be empowered to say you will not, you know, you're not going to do put yourself at risk. And as that came out more and more, you know, people began to be more empowered. But the true stories of what was going on on the front line, you know, were there on the front line, it began to emerge. And that was absolutely key. And I really believe that those webinars that, that were set up literally by professionals just setting it up and then word of mouth. So some evenings we, on a Friday, four, five, six hundred people were on the call, saved lives. Out of doubt, that saved lives. It gave everyone listening to that webinar, it would have given them rights and awareness and stopped the misinformation. Absolutely, because you remember there was a vacuum and there was, I remember there was a vacuum from the government. You know, people were seeing Italy, they were seeing different countries, they were seeing, you know, the chaos around the world, you know, Europe. And there was almost like nothing, we weren't being told directly I, I don't know if people were just rendered, you know, they just could, didn't know what was happening. There was a sense of British exceptionalism, which I felt was unhelpful. You know, oh, this cannot happen here. We, we, we're not going to have that happen here. We saw what was happening in France and Spain. That can't happen here. There was this kind of wishful thinking that somehow we're, we're the exception in this country. You know, I, once I saw what was going on in, in Europe, I thought, I'm protecting myself. This is happening. People are dying and, you know, they, I, I think that was very unfortunate not to take it seriously, you know, at, from the get-go, you know. So these webinars became absolute must. They, they kept, kept people and they kept me literally sane because one time I was worried about my own mental health because it was, it was so scary, you know, not knowing this invisible enemy. Where is it? How do I protect myself? 
And there were challenges with employers, without a doubt. Many people told their stories that they were not being supported by their managers. They were being made to, you know, to put themselves at risk. And this, the, the protections around COVID, around the risk assessments, only came out later, quite later on, midway into the, the pandemic, you know. So people were, were still putting themselves at risk. I was in a fortunate position that, well, at the time, I didn't see it as fortunate. When I got the letter saying that I was extremely clinically vulnerable, I was absolutely, you know, I was frightened. I, I, was, I didn't like that. I was like, well, I, this means that, I, you know, it was very scary. But once I'd come to terms with what that meant, and that, that gave me privilege in a way that meant that I could stay at home, you know, I just then, you know, resolved to, to, to do whatever I could to support my colleagues and get as much information out to counter the disinformation. Because I saw the nonsense, you know, about, you know, microchip and all that, you know. So there was a lot of, some of the webinars challenged that, you know, that we have grievances and we have grounds to feel suspicious, but we have to, you know, we, we need to listen to people that know what they're talking about. So we had doctors on there, absolutely brilliant. Did your role change? You know, you were staying at home. I'm assuming you had all the technological things to stay, to do your work from home. How much did your social work change? I mean, obviously working from home, was that was a massive change and that affected everyone in the country and working with clients in a way that was using other media yeah. you know, videos obviously life and limb you know people in severe distress or concerns would have face and people had pp for that do you think there's been any positive changes that you'd like yeah. to hold on to moving forward yeah, I, do. I think what has impressed me about and I'm not just thinking about my own clients. I've heard anecdotally from my colleagues that the survival, we're looking at the strength-based model and the strength that some of our, our clients have, have been able to, you know, I don't think they've, they've developed them. I think they've always been there, but they've been able to access them. And that's been amazing, really. Very, very positive to see how, how resourceful, you know, clients have been. So... I do think, and there has been a culture of dependency, especially in mental health work, going back, you know, decades, I'd say, and in, into recent times, where you've got clients that are just so dependent on the service, on a care code to do everything, you know, that they, they, they lose that sense of their own agency. And I think through this pandemic, you know, people have had to, we've had to encourage our clients to stand on their own two feet and to be more, resourceful and they have done that and so I think it will change the way we work you know we we will be able to close people's cases and and giving them that reassurance you know that they have those, those strengths and they have those skills so that to me has been a real positive personally I found my clients very very have remained stable have remained well my relationship with them has endured and, and got better because I felt I've been able to be congruent with them and direct with them, you know, and they with me, because there's a certain, certain honesty that is given, is brought to, to the way that I've been able to work with clients, which I've, I've really found that rewarding because I've been able at times where appropriate share about my own concerns, fears about the pandemic and, you know, reinforcing, you know, how serious it is and to take it, the fact that I'm clinically vulnerable and have had to work from home. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a level the playing ground, playground, but it's kind of 
you know, it's give it, it's it's empowered. I think it's empowered service users in a way that never really imagined it would do. You know, you'd think that they would have been anxious, more anxious, more, you know, probably, you know, needing more intervention. But it's been the opposite. In fact, that you know, they've they've been able to draw on resources, and I think that's helped them a lot. So I hope that will continue. It's interesting, isn't it, when there's a shared pandemic? I think that everyone is affected some way or another. And then suddenly we're not talking to, you know, we're not doing an assessment, for example, from a position of power. You're you're suddenly moved into a a bit more of an equal stage. And when you're both talking about this new pandemic that's come about, you both know as much as each other. You know, I think that's Mm -hmm. actually quite interesting from from a social work perspective. I think that's quite interesting. Yes, I agree. I think it's it's the power dynamic, I think, that shifted because yeah. the way some of the clients have been, because they've been sufferers, service users for many, many years, they've kind of, they know how to operate in isolation. You know, they know what it, they have to do, you know, if they have to stay indoors or so that, that they were sort of ahead of, of many people, really. It's interesting. Yeah. And everyone else having to do that now, it kind of is, you know, a level of really. So, yeah, it's fascinating. And I think now that once we start to open up, I'd definitely like to have those conversations with people about and looking at it in terms of, you know, getting some sort of questionnaire or even a book, you know, really getting these ideas and, and finding out from service users what they did, how they felt, how they're able to cope, what do they think, you know, will, you know, help them the most. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there for researchers to really you know, get some interesting information. Which could, you know, I mean, I know that right now services are going to be changed. I mean, this is happening on a national basis in terms of adult services. We're looking at now in the next couple of years, neighbourhood teams, which which will be going backwards. I've been qualified long enough to know that we used to have this. So there'll be more like hubs linked to primary care. So yeah, things are kind of, you know, shifting. And I think that'll be more of a personalised service, more of a localised service instead of these big teams you know and maybe as well for people to be coming into smaller GP surgeries or meeting someone in a less formal basis can also help that relationship I think sometimes social work can be a bit professionalized Mm -hmm. in that we we can sometimes be very professional in the way that we do assessments or even talk Mm -hmm. about an assessment or even use the way that we use words and maybe that's also something that has changed because suddenly we're talking on the phone and they can see you know our bookshelf and we can see their bookshelf mm-hmm. or they can see our dirty dishes and we can mm. see their dirty dishes because we're all yeah. working from home and it, it kind of creates a, maybe a slight equality maybe yeah I, I agree I think so and I, I think I think there is rich information to be gathered from service users. I really hope that researchers will be able to use, you know, this in the future because I think this could inform services and the way we do things in many ways, not just social work, but, you know, in in many, many ways, I think. It's very, very interesting to reflect on the clients. I think they've they've fared much better than, than we would have hoped. And can you think of a case in particular which has sort of challenged your yeah, I mean, I've, I've had cases where 
you know, I've worked with a range of people with various mental health issues. And, but I think young people, because we know that I think as a demographic, they've been the ones that have been affected the most and as of all, I think. And people with diagnosis of personality disorder or EUPD, which is, you know, borderline personality disorder as well. And, and it's interesting because this client group often it's been hard for them to get therapy. You know, it's been hard for this group to get the services that they need. Now, you know, obviously in a pandemic, you're not able to see people unless you absolutely need to. So a lot of it is about talking to them on the phone, you know, working with them around their strengths and their inner resources. And I've found that some of those clients have, again, you know, been able to dig deep and find the resources to keep themselves out of hospital. And so some of our clients, you know, we've had to be very congruent with them to say, look, the hospitals, unfortunately, this is a place where people are getting infected. You know, this is the last place that you'd want to really go unless you really have to. And I'm not trying to scare you, but this is a fact. You know, having those conversations with people and, and they've been able to sort of acknowledge, yes, you're right. I'm going to, you know, stay at home. I'm going to find a way to manage, you know, my anxieties. So yeah, it's, it, those kind of interventions with people have been very interesting to see. How do you think we can learn from that? We as social workers can learn from that and take that forward. Once hospitals stop becoming places of infection. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think the pandemic has made us vulnerable. Every single one of us, even if you're not clinically vulnerable, it still made us all vulnerable. And we're human. And we've had to then convey that, you know, in the way that we've worked like never before. I mean, I think that that has probably helped how we relate to one another, how we've been able to relate to our clients, you know. And I think if we can continue in that way to sort of, I, I think that would be a good thing, that would be a good legacy of, of the pandemic, if, if there is a legacy. I think we have to think more about, which we are trained to do, which is about strength, but really, you know, think about more, you know, in, in a concrete way, you know, to, to help people to look at, I think it's been far too easy for us to then, you know, to push people into other places that maybe, you know, they didn't need to go, like hospital, you know, if they don't really need to go to hospital, but because maybe we've not been able to, they're in distress, you know, we haven't got the time or, or we haven't got therapy, but, you know, we have to find a way to sort of work with people so that we can listen to them enable them to then, as I said, find the, the strength, find their own strength and inner resources so that they can cope through that crisis. Because a lot of it, a lot of it is about crisis management, situations that occur, and then, you know, they go, go through that crisis and come out the other end. So, yeah, I think we can, we, we can change the way that we work if we think more about that, the practical interactions and conversations that we're having with our clients. And the, the great thing is, Working from home, the distractions have been less. And the evidence has shown it that people working from home largely have worked longer hours. They've worked more effectively than they have done in the office. So that, that's a fact. And yet still we were being told, get back to the office, you know, go back to print and buy a sandwich. You know, you're going to lose your job. Yes, this, is, this is scaremongering. Absolutely ridiculous. People have worked much more. I know I've worked better. I've been focused. So... There's, there's a lot of good that's come out of this situation. Which we never would have expected a year ago, right? I think a year ago we were just so 
focused <laughs> on this crisis that we've never ever had to deal with we've never had to deal with something that affects us so significantly and affects the whole country so significantly when I say we never yeah. I mean in my particular working lifespan it's it's <laughs> not been something that's happened really for decades has it 100 years a pandemic is a one I mean this is just I think we're still not in a position to process what has happened. No. Because it's so huge. The way it's transformed the way we work. I mean, I know for, you know, some of the stuff that the election on 2019 that Jeremy Corbyn was advocating, four-day week, broadband, free. I mean, th- this, this, is, this is showing up, you know, that as a society, we need to address th- these inequalities. You know, you look at the young people that are, have no access to you know computers and broadband etc. But this, this was being advocated. So again, it was it was ahead of the curve really. And now you know you're looking at what we've gone through furlough and working from home. Although as I said, my employers we 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 we've always had the ability to work agilely. We, we've had laptops, computers, and mobile you know smartphones anyway. But this has just pushed it you know quickly. Because we did face difficulties doing that because there's a sort of style of management that wants to see you in the office and thinks seeing you in the office means you're working, which is an absolute ridiculous thing. We're professional people. We work to deadlines. It doesn't matter if you're in the office or not. No one's going to do your work for you. You have to do it. But there's this kind of style of management that was very much about quite bullying as well. And this, this is not just here. This is across the country. There's elements of this kind of old-fashioned style of management, headcount, you know, if you're not visible, you're not doing anything. And that's been blown out of the water. I guess that's, again, another positive that can be taken away from this, is that styles of thinking have changed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's at all levels. That's at social work levels, the way that we communicate with the people that we're working for. That's at, at management level, the way they're communicating with social workers and throughout all levels, this thinking process about what was right for social work last year and what's right for social work post-pandemic has completely mm. changed. And that's, that's also another positive that we can really take forward. Yes, definitely. I think uh, social workers are, are very resourceful, adaptable and sociable persons. I, I love being in the office. I love being in the office I'm a sociable person and I do miss that camaraderie you know and I think what we will have now is a hybrid where we're going maybe one or two days a week and then you know we work in other places you know we have things that we have to do it's evident if you're not doing it and, you know so I think trust has been built up particularly between managers and, and, and the workers now trust has been built up and not only the trust I think a development of empathy because I think that was lacking particularly with locums, you know, many teams you've had a high number of locum staff. And often, why do you have locum staff? It's because people do not trust, they don't want to work permanent because they don't want to be bullied and harassed, you know, and that has been a massive feature in the work. If you were not a social worker, what would you be? Well, I had, I'm a qualified nurse. I started out as a nurse. I think probably a teacher because both of my sisters are teachers. And at one point I was going to do my PGC. And if you were Prime Minister for a day and had power to change one thing about social work, what would it be? I think I'd, I'd elevate the status of social workers. 
if I was a prime minister, because I know what a social worker does, I would then be able to deploy them in, in different situations, like in schools, particularly now looking at what, you know, what we're, we're looking at misogyny and what we're hearing about what's going on in education. I would look at their strengths, you know, and, and, and their, their value within society and increase their pay. <laughs> I agree with both those. I actually love the idea about having social work in different places, like in schools or in GP Mm -hmm. surgeries, or using social workers and the strengths that social workers have to instigate change in other organisations. I I think that's a really lovely idea, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And even in universities or in business, there's many, many places, actually, that social work can bring out a real change. Absolutely. We're change agents. We're change agents, so we can be anywhere. And I just ask, we're underskilled. They're not using us to the, to our max. You know, we've got incredible skills of working together, teams, and, and being able to problem solve. You know, I think oh, if I was prime minister, oh, wow, I'd love it. Think about a lot of changes. And I, I like the increase oh, in our wages as well. Definitely, definitely. We 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 you know we, we, as as all you know NHS workers as well. But I think you know social care. We've seen during the pandemic who have been the real stars, who have kept the country going, you know, and you just think, wow, incredible. All those workers. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they have come out of it. What yeah. are some of those positive changes? As I said, working relationships, trust has been developed, greater trust. I think appreciation for what we're doing and what we have done throughout the pandemic. You know, as I said, sickness levels have gone down dramatically since people have been working from home. Goodwill is there. People have been working really hard. And I think management has acknowledged that. I know in my particular trust, the CEO has been fantastic. Absolutely. From the get-go, he, he was on point, very high levels of empathy towards staff. You know, and, and that, that is so important. You know, we're not machines. You know, there has been this culture in some places of people being sort of, I don't know, just not being valued, you know, and being sort of seen as, you're doing something wrong or assuming that you are, you know, and that's again why you have a culture where people don't want to stay. They, they, they'd rather work as an agency worker because they don't feel they're going to be you know, looked after or they don't feel they get the opportunities to progress. So I think a lot of things have come out of the pandemic where people have been open definitely since, you know, on top of it, with, with the death of um, the murder of, of George Floyd, that just opened the door. People then just said, you know, I'm going to talk. And I'm going to speak my truth. And people have done that. What do you think social work can learn from that? Well, you know, I've been qualified since 1987. And I remember when I was first doing my training, and I remember one of them was anti-oppressive practice and anti-discriminatory practice, being able to demonstrate as a new trainee social worker that you are working, you understand what that means, and you will endeavour to work in an anti-oppressive and anti-discriminatory way. Now, that was actually a competency that had to be, you had to present that, you had to be observed, you know, demonstrate that you understand that and that that's part of the way you practice. You know, I, I've become a practice educator in the last 2018, 19, and I look at the the training of new, new social workers, and would you believe anti-oppressive and anti-discriminatory practice is no longer part of the He's actually in it, in the training brief. He doesn't, there's no, he doesn't say that. I mean, he talks about equality 
and diversity, but he doesn't talk about anti-oppressive. And I think that's wrong. That is a really retrograde step. We need to have conversations about racism. Racism is a structural inequality that has devastating consequences on people's lives and their health. And we have to, you know, social workers are, are part of our job is to empower people, is to, you know, advocate on behalf of people. This, this, is, this affects people's lives. And I, I, I was really sad to see that that had fallen off the training, off the actual, you know, training of social workers. It's there, but it's very sort of weak, yeah? Very weak. And it, it needs to be there, very much so. And I, I've seen through Baswa and through work of, of, of officers in Baswa that, you know, there's a big push now to look at the education of social workers and to reinstate that. Because we, you know, irrespective of what people want to do with narratives and, you know, race reports, the structural inequality is real. You know, I'm not going to be gaslit by anyone. I know what it feels like. I know what it is like. I know how it affects people, myself, people around me. It's real, and we need to be able to put things in place to address it. And social work is the best place to challenge that. Any inequality, whether it's you know in terms of your sexuality, in terms of disability. This is core to what we're about. So I was really horrified that that wasn't there. I hope that's going to change. And a part of recognising that is asking questions, isn't it? It's it's about recognising where racism occurs at a structural level, not just at a personal level. Absolutely. And, you know, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, what happened is just so massive. I mean, it just literally blew the whole thing open you know we we in this country we, you know we need to have a proper conversation about racism and, and you know it has to happen you know what I mean it's about moving forward and, and what is so enlightening is to see the young people on the streets all races they're the ones who are going to bring about this change as well but in social work we have to be able to feel you know strong enough to say and we have to acknowledge the inequality that exists within social work it was a report done that talks about the NHS being snowy white feet, you know, the top of the, the echelons, you know, you've got literally three or four chief execs are black or Asian. You know, in social work, the top of, of, of social work hierarchy, very few black and Asian, you know, people are there. We, we know that it's a very, you know, it, it is very difficult to progress. And so we need to face these truths and start to look at them and, and start to challenge them because, this is what this is. This is created, really. This this conversation, and it, 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 this is a fantastic thing to have happened because if we create a more equal society, everybody wins. Yeah. Everybody yeah. will benefit. Class, race, everyone is going to win because we need to say, you know, this is unacceptable. And within structures, we know that the criminal justice system works against certain people. We know that it's, it's evidence. It's clear. We know that. The psychiatric system works against certain people. You know, it's structural. You know, for for anyone to deny that, that they are literally gaslighting. I mean, it's it's nonsensical. So we we have to fight. You know, we have to continue to push that. And I, I'm because I feel now I'm at the end of my career. You know, I, I literally at some point, in, you know, in a few years, I will be retiring. But you know, I think if we can get this change to to look at more. And it's not radical, but it, 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 people will say it is. But I can remember as a newly qualified social worker, we had these conversations. We had these conversations about poverty and about race and about 
misogyny. We, we, this is what it's about, you know. And I just think we've gone so quiet. We've gone so quiet about these things, which affect many of our clients who are, you know, poor, disadvantaged, you know. And it's, it, it, you know, I really hope that this will bring about a real change. And I think it will because people, you know, are coming together and are realizing this, these injustices have to end. It's about giving people the power to be able to start those conversations. Absolutely. What would you tell a friend okay. that wanted to be a social worker? You know what? I would say it's a brilliant career. You know, you'll never be out of work. Yeah. So I think it's a brilliant career. It's been fantastic for me. You know, I've enjoyed it. I've worked in different, you know, positions. It's rewarding. So I would encourage them. I'd say go for it. Thank you so much for your interview. It's been really great. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. Oh, I'm really glad. 